0: Get your Bibles out. You're going to need them today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. So let me just give you a heads up about that. And while you're doing that, let me give you something to think about. I want you to think about this question. How do you think of Jesus? Or let me put it another way. And and I want you to answer this. If you're with people there in your living room or wherever, go ahead and answer this. Uh, How would you finish this sentence? Jesus is my fill in the blank, would, would you say, Jesus is my friend, Jesus is my savior, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my redeemer, Jesus is my homeboy. How would you fill it in? Jesus is my what? All those things that I mentioned are great and biblical ways to think about who Jesus is in our lives. Um, but this sermon series, Follow Me, We're going to take a slightly different angle on this whole thing. We're going to look at this question, who is Jesus supposed to be in my life, from an angle that we don't always look at it. And I want us to think about it this way. In this series, we're going to think in terms of Jesus is my example. Jesus is my example. You know, I find it interesting. There's this famous statement that Jesus made, maybe one of the most famous statements he ever made. And here it is. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I was thinking about this because Jesus says three things. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And I got to say that I've heard a million sermons preached about the truth of Jesus. And I've heard a million sermons preached about the life of Jesus and the life available in Jesus. But you know, we tend to look past that question about what is the way of Jesus? What is the way of Jesus? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. It's not that we have to figure out a way. It's not that we get to determine the truth. It's not that somehow we have life within ourselves. All of that is found in the person of Jesus. So we're going to be thinking for the next several weeks about this question. What is the way of Jesus? And how do I walk in that way? Now, It's not simply copying Jesus in everything that he did. It's not that. I mean, after all, uh, his context in life was completely different. Uh, Where he lived, when he lived, what was going on, all completely different. Our context is different than his. In some ways, even our calling is different than his. I mean, think of it this way. Um, uh, There's a storm brewing and... And your friends are in a boat on a stormy sea in danger. What do you do? Well, if you're Jesus, you just walk on water. And when you get there, you calm the storm with a word from your mouth. I don't suggest you try that. Or here's another example. You meet a blind man and he tells you about how much he really wishes to see. What do you do? Well, Jesus spit in a guy's eyes, and brought his sight back. If you do that, you're probably going to get punched in the face. So it's not just a matter of going, hey, what did Jesus do? And I have to do the same thing. It's not copying his exact life, but it's more about um, looking at the principles that he lived by. Looking at the values that he lived by, what were the things that influenced his choices? How did he prioritize his life? How did he know what to say yes to and what to say no to? How did he know what to do with his life? Jesus was guided by some principles that should also guide us as we live our lives. Jesus held on to some deeply held core values that helped him to figure out what to say and what to do from situation to situation. And you and I can and should adopt those principles. We should adopt those values because the context in which we live may be very different, but the way in which we live can be very, very similar. So each week, what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be examining uh, a short story taken from one of the Gospels right out of the life of Jesus. This is what actually happened to Jesus. This is what Jesus actually said. This is where Jesus actually went. This is what Jesus actually did. And we're going to look at a story and we're going to see this unfolding, just history right before us in the the pages of the Bible. And we're going to then grapple with how do we follow his example in our 21st century lives? Because our context is different. I mean, Jesus never had his car break down on the freeway and have to decide what to do. But he lived by some principles and values that might help us decide what to do if that happens to us. Jesus never had to minister to people online like all of us as church leaders are trying to figure out how to do now. But his example can still give us some big principles that would help us figure out how we can best minister To people online, Jesus never had to decide who to vote for in a contentious election. Uh, He never had to decide what to post on his social media accounts, and more importantly, perhaps what not to post. He never had to deal with marriage struggles. Jesus never had to uh, deal with an unruly teenager that he was trying to parent. There's so many things that we go through in our daily lives, and we go, you know, Jesus's life is so so different from mine. It's so distinct from mine. It's so separated from mine. And yet the principles that he lived by, the values that guided him, are not so different. And they can help us really figure out how do we walk through life in the 21st century. There are examples in his life that can give us a picture of what to do in our lives today. So in this series, we're going to be thinking in terms of Jesus is my example. And we're going to start right at the beginning of his public ministry. As I told you already, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. So turn your Bibles to Mark 1, and I'll get you up to speed as you're going there. Uh, Mark Mark just jumps right in, man. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't give us any uh, pre-story. He just jumps right in. And he's very succinct. He starts with John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. From there, he goes to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, which, by the way, is a 40-day story. And yet he gives it one verse. Uh, he tells us that Jesus starts calling his disciples, remember, follow me and I will make you fishers and men. Uh, and all of that would have taken the other gospel writers probably three or four chapters, but he does it in the first 20 verses of his gospel account. Uh, And then, Jesus goes to Capernaum to preach, and the people are amazed because he preaches as one with authority and not as the Pharisees and scribes. And then, while he's there in Capernaum, there's a demon-possessed man. He casts the demon out of the man, and everybody is astonished. Not only does he preach with power and authority, but he actually has authority over demons. Even demons have to obey him. Who is this guy? And then uh, he's invited to Peter's house. He's there for dinner. And while he's there, he meets Peter's mother-in-law, who's deathly ill, and he miraculously heals her with a word. And the word about him is spreading all throughout the region. So he's at Peter's house. He he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And Mark gives us all of that In the first 31 verses of his gospel. So let's pick up the story in verse 32 of Mark chapter 1. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon possessed. I want you to make a couple of notes. If you write in your Bible, maybe you want to underline after the sun had set. Okay, he's already had an incredibly long day. He's already there at Peter's house to have dinner. And now it's nighttime. The sun has set and people start finding out that he's there and they bring him who? All who were ill and who were demon-possessed. Not a person, not a couple of people, not a handful of people. Everybody in the region who is sick or demon possessed is being brought to Jesus at Peter's house. Verse 33 And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Man, this is quite a day, right? It's already been a long and busy day. He's already gone through Capernaum. It's the Sabbath. supposed to be a day of rest, but there doesn't seem to be any rest in it for Jesus. He preaches in the synagogue, casts out demons, and then he goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house. He heals the mother-in-law, and now the crowd is coming to him at night when it's supposed to be time to rest because here's the thing. When people have absolutely pressing needs, they don't always seem to care if you need rest. Don't believe me? Ask a mother of a toddler. Find out how that feels. Ask somebody with a newborn, right? Rachel Brown or Rachel Sandwald or, or uh, Kelly Marley. You know, people in our church are, are dealing with this right now. A house full of little kids They don't stop to go, hey, mom, do you need some rest? Hey, dad, do you need some rest? Especially when their needs are pressing. Kid falls off something and hurts himself. He screams and he does not care if you're reading or praying or cooking dinner at the time. He wants your attention, right? Because when people have a pressing need, they're not interested in your rest. They're interested in having their need get met. So he's supposed to be having a Sabbath dinner with Peter's family and some close friends. But as night falls, there's a knock at the door and they open the door. And there are hundreds of people outside in need, desperate need of help. And incredibly, Jesus' public ministry is launched in one day. Now, yeah, this is an unbelievable start to his public ministry. Any church planter would love to get off to a start like this, right? Hey, last week we, we planted a church in this town, and this week everyone in the town is coming to our church. Everybody is coming for our ministry. Everybody wants some of what we have. That's the, the dream come true for somebody who's launching their ministry. I remember when I was in youth ministry a long, long time ago. And and I was a part of one of the biggest churches in the country and we had this huge youth ministry. We had about 800 high school students in our youth group. And let me just tell you what we expected of our volunteer staff. It was at least a six day a week commitment as a volunteer to work in our youth ministry. I mean, if it was a Sunday, You were expected to be there Sunday morning with your students. You were expected to be there Sunday night for the youth service with your students. You might get to take some time off on Monday, Tuesday, we had a staff meeting. Wednesday, we had our big youth group gathering with 400 students. The next night, Thursday, we had our youth group gathering again with another 400 students because our building was only big enough for 400, but we had 800. Every Friday night, we went to the high school football game or basketball game or whatever the kids were doing. We had sleepovers on Saturday. We spent every day with these teenagers. And you know what? I never even thought twice about it. That was my life in ministry in those days. See, Jesus is there just launching his ministry. And this healing ministry goes deep into the night. As I said, hundreds of people outside, some of them on on cots, some of them blind, some of them screaming because they're possessed by demons, some with leprosy, uh, some with lameness and they can't walk. Blind people, deaf people, people in desperate need. And Jesus has been one by one ministering to them all night. And it goes deep, deep, deep into the wee hours in the morning before people begin to fall asleep and the crowd disperses. And by the time we pick up the story in verse 35, the whole house is sleeping. Look at verse 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. So Jesus, long before the sun comes up, looks around, he hears a bunch of snoring men. They're all stretched out on the floor in Peter's house. And he has to tiptoe over these guys and get past them. In order to somehow sneak out very quietly, he opens the door quietly, closes it very quietly. Now that he's outside in the darkness of the early, early morning hours, he pulls his cloak up around his face and he begins to walk carefully through the town quietly, hoping to be unnoticed until he gets to the outskirts of town and he finds a place where nobody is, where nobody would look for him, where nobody would find him. And there, in what the Bible calls a secluded place... He begins to meet with his father in prayer. Verse 35, the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house. He had to get away. He had to find a secluded place. He had to spend time with the father. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but wasn't he tired? (laughs) Didn't he need sleep? Of course he needed sleep. He's fully human. Of course he's tired. But his priorities tell him that what's more important than his rest is his time with the father. Because that time with the father is going to produce a deeper rest in his spirit than sleep could produce in his body. Because he was perfectly wise. And he knew that there was something he needed more than sleep. He needed intimacy with God. And so, don't miss this. Jesus left the crowds. Now, now if you think about that, I mean, especially if you have any background in ministry or any heart for people, this is mind-boggling to me. As a pastor, I can't even envision this. There's a crowd of people who want Jesus' ministry And he leaves the crowds. To me, that sounds crazy. It probably sounds crazy to anyone who has a heart for ministry. This is a dream come true. You're just launching your ministry and God is moving powerfully. Miracles are happening. Everyone is coming. The whole town wants to be a part of this. They want to hear what you have to say. They want to get some of what you're offering in terms of the power of God. And the crowds finally die down enough for people to go to sleep and get a few hours of rest. And what does Jesus do? He leaves and goes to where there are no crowds. He knows there will be more people when the sun comes up. And he does the unthinkable. He walks away from the crowds. And he goes to a secluded place. To be by himself. Now, if you're an introvert, this makes all the sense in the world to you. But if you are a flaming extrovert like me who just loves to be with people, this seems crazy. Jesus leaves the action where the ministry is taking place, he walks away from the crowds, he gets alone by himself in a secluded pray, uh, place so he can pray there. But the seclusion doesn't last long, right? Because desperate people don't wait until a reasonable hour. Would you? I mean, seriously, think about this. Let's say you're a parent and your child is near death. And somebody has just knocked on your door at four o'clock in the morning. And you said, my goodness, what are you doing here? Why are you here at this hour? And he says, you know, my son who is blind, he got healed last night. And I think this guy could do the same thing for your daughter. I think this man is sent from God with the power to heal. You've got to go. Do you just say, well, it's too early. I don't think I'm going to go. Maybe I'll check it out next week. No, you get up, you load the wagon, and you head into town with your daughter because you're desperate for a touch from God. Before the sun is even up, there is another knock at the door just like the night before. And there's a huge crowd. There's a line that goes around the house and out down the street. People have been lining up all night. And they're looking for Jesus. Hey, we heard about this guy. We heard he's a healer. We think he's sent from God. Where is he? My friend said he healed his son. He could touch my daughter. Where is Jesus? And the disciples are waking up and shaking out their sleep and going, yeah, he's around here somewhere. But they look and he's not there. And so what do they do? They go looking for him. Look at verse 36. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him. And said to him, Everyone is looking for you. (laughs) I love that line. Everyone is looking for you. Have you ever felt that way? Moms? Uh, Have you ever felt that way? Teachers? Have you ever felt that way? Uh, Business people? Everyone is looking for you. It's pressing on everyone's agenda that they have to get in touch with you. Maybe you're a, a grace group leader. Maybe you're a youth worker or, or maybe you're coaching a little league team or, or working and volunteering at the YMCA. Whatever the case is, it just seems like they want more and more and more and more. Whatever you offer, everyone is looking for you. On the one hand, as I said, this is a dream come true, isn't it? This is a way to launch your ministry. On the other hand, this is a crossroads. That Jesus is standing at with his men. Jesus has to decide. Is he going to have his life controlled by the agenda of other people? Or is his life going to be controlled by the agenda of his father? See, the expectations that others put on our lives can sometimes be overwhelming. And if you're sort of naturally a people pleaser... It can wear you down and you can find that you are missing the path that God meant to put you on because you keep ending up on the path that other people put you on. So Jesus had to decide, is it going to be the expectations of others that determine the course of my life? Or is it going to be the plan of my father? Everyone was looking for him. What would he do? Look at verse 38. He said to them, okay, just before we read this, just get, remember the context. Everyone is waiting. Everyone is looking for him, and these people are desperate. They come to him, they're like, oh, Jesus, I don't know if you know, but the whole town is waiting at Peter's house. They can't wait to see you. There's so many sick people. There's so many people who need to know God. There's so many people who are desperate for ministry. Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus says, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Hey, Jesus, your ministry launch is going perfectly. Hey, Jesus, all around town, you're the only one anyone's talking about. You're the only game in town. Everybody is interested in what you have to say. Everybody is interested in the ministry that you have to do. I know it's just day two of your public ministry, but this thing is blowing up, Jesus. This is a dream come true. They're all waiting for you. Come on, let's go. And Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. There's a crowd waiting for you. Yeah, let's go somewhere else. Yeah, but there's a guy who came four hours in the middle of the night carrying his sick daughter. And and you're his only... Yeah, let's go somewhere else. What? Who does that? People, People needed him. People were counting on him. Yeah... Let's go somewhere else. What about that guy who traveled all night? Yeah, let's go somewhere else. It's incredibly sad to me. Jesus knew about the crowd. He knew about their needs. He knew how desperate they were. He knew about their expectations. And he decided not to go back with his disciples and meet those needs. How do we make sense of that? What can we learn from Jesus' example that will apply in our lives here in the 21st century? I want to suggest two huge lessons. Lesson number one is this. Whatever else you may think, your priority one is your relationship with God. Priority one in your life is your relationship with God. I know you have things to do. I know you set goals for the year. I know you have people who are counting on you, who will be deeply disappointed if you don't get on the train they're trying to put you on. I know you have hopes and dreams and plans to pursue But if your life is so focused on what you're doing and pursuing, even good things, even ministry, if your life is so focused on what you're doing and pursuing that you don't have time for your relationship with God, it's all going to blow up in your face anyway. Your relationship with God is priority one. He's your most important relationship. He is the source of everything you need. You know, sometimes in life you could skip steps, but you cannot skip your relationship with God and think that you're going to live a life with any impact. Think that you're going to live a life with any power. Think that you're going to live a life that is on track for the abundant life that Jesus said he died to give you. You have to decide God is your first priority. Now, I'm not saying that means you have to spend more hours in your daily quiet time than you spend at work. That's not how we measure priorities. Measure your priorities this way. Ask yourself, what does it take to push my time with God out of my life? If there's a good game on, does that push my time with God out of my life? If a friend calls, does that push my time with God out of my life? If it's really busy at work, does that push my time with God out of my life? If I'm tired and I just want to sleep in, does that push my time with God out of my life? God has to be priority one because he's the source of everything you need. He's the one who has all the power you need. And so he's your most important relationship. If you try to do anything good on your own power, you are guaranteed to fail. I'm I'm afraid that you might not have heard what I just said. If you try to do anything good on your own power, you are guaranteed to fail. John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh, my friends, don't let the busyness of life Don't let the expectations of others or even your own hopes and dreams get in the way of your personal relationship with God. Some of us have gotten so busy doing good things that we don't have time for our good God. If you're cut off from the source, you can do nothing. Your relationship with God is priority one. That's huge lesson number one. Huge lesson number two is this. If you're a follower of Jesus, your life is not about your agenda. It's about his. Your life is not about your agenda. It's about his. With all those people lined up and depending on him, what did Jesus say? Look again at verse 38. He said to them, let's go somewhere else. Let's go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Jesus had a very clear understanding of his mission in life. He knew what he came for. You know, so many times the crowds were so impressed with him, they came and tried to make him a king. And you know what he did? He left the crowds every time. Because that was their agenda for his life. But he came to die on a cross. And he stayed on task. Jesus understood that he was on the Father's agenda. He understood that his, message, that his um, ministry, that his mission was not determined by the expectations of others. It was determined by the will of the Father. So uh, let me ask you this. Who controls your agenda? Your kids, your boss at work, your friends. It's easy to get off track and let others determine what our life path is supposed to be about. But Jesus knew who he was. He knew why he was here. And he let the father set his agenda. It happens again at a very pivotal time at the end of his ministry, doesn't it? He goes off to a lonely place. People have all kinds of expectations of him. He just came into town and they were shouting and screaming, he's the Messiah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. He's our savior. They had one expectation of him. Jesus went to a lonely place to spend time alone with his father in a garden called Gethsemane. And there he reaffirmed that he was not living his life based on their agenda. He was living his life based on the father's agenda. He knew who he was. He knew why he was here. And he set his face toward the cross and he refused to be deterred no matter what people's expectations of him were. Thank God he did. I wonder what controls your life. Do you prioritize your relationship with God above all else? Or do you let the busyness of your life creep in and control you and rob you of the intimacy that God wants to have with you? Are you living your life on God's agenda Even when it disappoints other people, even when you have to leave other people shrugging their shoulders and wondering what's wrong with you, are you still willing to live your life on God's agenda? Have you even given much thought to what God's agenda for your life might be? There's a better way. It's the way of Jesus, the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And prioritized his relationship with the Father above all else. And stayed on the Father's agenda regardless of the expectations of others. So once again, I remind you that Jesus stands and makes this calling to us. Follow me. And I will make you who I created you to be. Let's pray. God, we just want to thank you for the privilege of your calling upon our lives to follow you. We thank you that in your perfection, without need, you don't need us in any way, but you desire an intimate relationship with us, and we're the ones who need it. But so often, God, we let everything else come first. Forgive us, Father. Help us to realign our values, realign our priorities so that you and our relationship with you comes above everything else. Help us, Father, to resist the pull that is coming from so many directions, to even do good things, but they're not the good things you've called us to. Help us, God, to live on your agenda. We desperately need you. Help us to follow you.